0: Thank you very much. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. As some of you in the audience know, over the last six months, um, I've been privileged to give a number of talks, many of them in Washington. Um, I've been on Capitol Hill four times. I've been at the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I've been at the CIA, the FBI. I've even been at our National Counterterrorism Center, um, which is in an undisclosed location, the first time I've ever done that. And of course, I've been at a number of other universities around the country. I have not given a public talk at the University of Chicago until now. (laughs) Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, Of course, I've I've been at seminars, but that's not quite the same thing, and so thank you very much for coming today. Suicide terrorism has been rising around the world, but there's great confusion about why. Since many attacks, including 9-11, have been perpetrated by Muslim suicide terrorists, many have presumed that Islamic fundamentalism must be the obvious central cause. This presumption has fueled the belief that future 9-11s can be avoided only by wholesale transformation of Muslim societies, which was a core reason for broad public support for our recent invasion of Iraq. However, this presumed connection between suicide terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism is misleading and may be encouraging domestic and foreign policies likely to worsen our situation. Over the last few years, I've collected the first complete database of every suicide terrorist attack around the world from 1980 to the end of 2003 and then just recently I've updated that database for the crucial case of Iraq through the end of 2005. The core database uh, in general defines suicide terrorism in the classic sense you would expect of an attacker killing himself, himself, or herself, herself at the moment of trying to kill others. the core database includes 315 completed suicide terrorist attacks by 462 suicide terrorists who actually killed themselves. There are more suicide terrorists, more dead suicide terrorists, if you would, than attacks because many of the attacks were team attacks. Several years ago, in 2003, I published an initial version of this database in an academic article. I knew then that no academic or no think tank had collected such a database. What I didn't know until then was that no government had such a database of suicide terrorist attacks around the world since 1980. I was quickly contacted by folks working for DITRA, that's an agency in the Department of Defense, who actually put me onto the core people who collect data on terrorism statistics for the United States. It's done in Monterey, California. Of course, we have kept, our government has kept ordinary terrorism statistics going back decades, starting in the mid-1970s. However, what I found out, talking to the folks at Monterey, is that we didn't begin to collect statistics on suicide terrorism until fall of 2000. As a result, they were quite interested in getting my data, and I gave the data to DITRA, and in return, as you can see, DITRA was one of the funders of the update and expansion of the database, which has become uh, the basis for the book Dying to Win. And I'd also like to thank uh, the University of Chicago, the Carnegie Corporation in New York, and Argonne National Labs, who were all generous funders of this project. They've made it possible for me to become the director of the Chicago Project on Suicide Terrorism, which collects information on suicide terrorist attacks from around the world, not just in English, but as you can see, in the key native languages that you associate with this particular phenomenon. And those of you who are interested in learning more about the Chicago Project on Suicide Terrorism, you can go to the University of Chicago's annual report, the one. It just came out a few months ago, and they've done a profile of the project, and you can see a nice picture of the team there too, which I'm very proud of because I'm very proud of all the work that they have done for this, uh, for this project as well. This survey examines all the available open source information from the suicide terrorist groups themselves the target countries from the media, including computerized databases uh, such as Lexus and Phibis. And in addition, we have sent people to do international research, essentially to buy things on the black market in Cairo and Beirut. I want to emphasize that although today I'm going to summarize the statistics, and I'm going to give you kind of lists and and data uh, in chart form that this is not just a list of lists, but represents a rather large amount of new information. And I brought some things that I think you'll find quite interesting. It may come as a surprise for some of you to know that the suicide terrorist groups are quite proud of their activities in their local community. This glossy, yearbook-like album is published by the Tamil Tigers, who who are from Sri Lanka, and it's published in Jaffa, and it's published in Tom. And it is a commemorative album to their suicide attackers. But it doesn't commemorate blown-up bodies or body parts, it's the actual suicide attackers. And I'm afraid I'm a little further away than usual from the group, <laughs> but I, I hope even from here, many of you can see the pictures. And this doesn't just simply have their pictures, but it has their names, their birthplaces, their ages, and other important socioeconomic data about the attackers. Now, they don't publish this information for us. They're not sending it to Washington, um, but it is the case that it provides a lot of useful information for us. Um, and to give you an idea of how tricky it is to get this, when I went to our National <laughs> Counterterrorism Center, which is at this undisclosed location outside of Washington, I gave it about 120 uh, intelligence analysts. And after the talk, the group that does Sri Lanka came up to get a look at this. I was sort of surprised they hadn't had a copy, but they do now. Um, I also brought. I also brought a copy. Um, on the web because I think future researchers would find this quite valuable. So the information that I'm collecting here I'm hoping will become part of an archive of information for future use. What does the data show? The data shows that suicide terrorism and ordinary terrorism have been moving in opposite directions. From the mid-1980s to 2001, terrorist incidents of all types declined nearly in half. At the same time, suicide terrorism has been climbing at an alarming rate from an average of three attacks around the world per year in the 1980s to 50 in 2002 and 2003. And as you'll see in a few minutes, 2001 set a new world record. These facts help to explain why there was such a failure of imagination before 9-11. Since all terrorism was declining rapidly and we weren't tracking suicide terrorism, it was hard to see that the threat was actually growing. The data also shows that Islamic fundamentalism is, is not as closely associated with suicide terrorism as many people think. Overall, there have been 315 completed suicide terrorist attacks worldwide from 1980 to the end of 2003. The world leader is the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, a Marxist group, a secular group, a Hindu group the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka have done more suicide terrorist attacks than Hamas or Islamic Jihad. Further, at least 30% of Muslim suicide attacks were by secular groups such as the PKK in Turkey. Overall, at least 50% of suicide attacks are not associated with Islamic fundamentalism. Because the Tamil Tigers are unfamiliar, it's helpful to see that the Tamil Tigers conduct a suicide terrorist attack in the classic sense you would expect when I use that term. I'm sure many of you know that suicide terrorist groups like to make martyr videos. Well, the Tamil Tigers go further. They like to videotape actual suicide terrorist attacks. These are two pictures of the actual suicide assassination of Rajiv Gandhi in May 1991. The Tamil cameraman had hoped to take pictures of the attack and then take them back to Jaffna where they would be used for recruiting and training purposes. Instead, he got so close to the blast, he was killed, and the Indian government was able to retrieve 10 frames of the actual suicide assassination. Well, if you look at the top, the top slide, you can see there's a group of people, one of whom is the suicide assassin. And I just ask you to make a mental note of who you think that is. Well, I won't ask for a show of hands, but you should know that when I do, many fewer than one in four pick Danu, the woman who was second from the left with the glasses and the garland and it's mainly because of her very pleasant face, how happy she is, and in fact, Rajiv Gandhi didn't feel threatened by her either, and actually waved away his security so that she could approach, and that's her in the bottom slide, about to put a garland around Gandhi's neck. Well, that's the last second of Gandhi's life. In the next frame, she triggers a suicide belt under her garment, killing everyone in that picture. You might also like to know that Danu is the first person ever to use a suicide vest. That tactic that we so often associate with the Palestinians, the Palestinians got the idea of a suicide vest from the Tamil Tigers. To explain suicide terrorism, my book analyzes the phenomenon at three levels. It seeks to explain why suicide terrorism makes sense for terrorist organizations, the strategic logic, why it gains mass support, the social logic, and what motives drive individuals to do it, the individual logic. Each level of analysis is important because suicide terrorism is conducted by non-state actors who lack the coercive apparatus of a state to compel the surrounding society or individuals to support their operations. My book essentially devotes equal weight to these three levels, one-third, one-third, one-third. Today, I'm going to focus on the strategic logic partly due to time, and partly because it's the logic that unifies the others. I'm also going to present some information about the demographic profile of suicide terrorists, because after looking at 462, this really provides our best demographic profile to date. What nearly all suicide terrorist attacks have in common is not religion, but a specific secular strategic goal to coerce a democratic state to withdraw combat forces, I don't mean advisors, I mean tanks, fighter aircraft, or APCs, from territory that the terrorists consider to be their homeland or prize greatly. From Lebanon to Israel to Sri Lanka to Kashmir to Chechnya, every suicide terrorist campaign since 1980 has been waged by terrorist groups whose main goal has been to establish or maintain self-determination for territory that they prize. Religion is rarely the root cause, although it's often used as a tool by terrorist organizations in recruiting and in other efforts in the service of the broader goal. Three general patterns in the data support my conclusions. The first concerns the timing of suicide terrorist attacks. Suicide terrorism rarely occurs as an isolated or random phenomenon as it would if it were the product of merely irrational individuals or an ideology or religious fanatics. Instead, the attacks tend to occur in clusters that look very much like campaigns and specifically 301 of the 315 attacks occur in coherent, organized, strategic campaigns that terrorist groups design for specific political, mainly secular, goals. Only 5% are random or isolated events. So, to be clear, there are 5% of the attacks I'm not going to be able to explain for you. However, I am claiming to be able to explain 95% of the attacks. This table shows all the campaigns that have occurred since 1980, 18, five were ongoing. This table reorganizes the campaigns by the disputes that produce them. As you can see, suicide terrorist campaigns are directed at gaining control of territory that the terrorists prize. This has been the central objective of every suicide terrorist campaign since 1980. Now, I'm not saying that foreign occupation or the threat of foreign occupation is a sufficient condition for suicide terrorism. But military presence or control of territory the terrorist prize does appear to be virtually a necessary condition. The third pattern concerns target selection. If suicide terrorism is a calculated, coercive strategy, one might expect that this strategy would be applied to target states generally considered to be the most vulnerable to coercive punishment. And rightly or wrongly, democracies are viewed as soft, especially vulnerable to coercive punishment. And the target state of every suicide terrorist campaign has been a democracy. Let me talk about the PKK in Turkey in this regard. The PKK is a Kurdish terrorist group. Well, as some of you probably, many of you probably know, in the 1980s and 90s, the Turks were at least moderately brutal toward their Kurds and the PKK did use suicide terrorism against the Turkish government. However, during that same period, just a few miles away, Saddam Hussein was far more brutal to hit Iraq's Kurds and neither the PKK nor any other terrorist group ever sought to use suicide terrorism against Saddam Hussein. And now that we know more about the strategic logic of suicide terrorism, it helps. We We can see better why. Who would ever think that killing hundreds or even thousands of Iraqi civilians would have caused Saddam Hussein to change his mind about anything? So the bottom line, The timing, goals, and societies targeted by suicide terrorism suggest that it is a coherent strategy designed to cause democratic states to abandon the control of territory that the terrorists prize. Al Qaeda fits the pattern. We have long known that a major goal of Al Qaeda has been to compel the United States to withdraw from the Arabian Peninsula but not how this goal relates to Osama's ability to recruit suicide terrorists to kill us. My book is the first to collect the complete set of the 71 Al Qaeda suicide attackers, that is the 71 individuals who actually killed themselves to carry out attacks for Osama from 1995 to early 2004. Of these 71, we know the names, and nationality, and other demographic information, about 67. And as you can see, the largest number, 34, come from Saudi Arabia, the majority from the uh, Persian Gulf, where the United States first began to station combat forces in 1990. Even when I speak to expert audiences, It's important to underline that 1990 was a watershed year in our deployment to the Persian Gulf. Before 1990, yes, we had a few hundred advisors with sidearms in uh, various countries on the Arabian Peninsula, mostly at embassies, but we had never before 1990 stationed combat troops, fighter aircraft, tanks, APCs. not going back decades, not even in World War II. Notice where they're not coming from. Iran, an Islamic fundamentalist population with 70 million people, three times the size of Saudi Arabia. No. Al-Qaeda, suicide terrorists. Sudan. Sudan is an Islamic fundamentalist country with a population about the same size, 21 million as Saudi Arabia, and with a brand of Islamic fundamentalism so congenial to Osama's beliefs, he chose to live there for three years in the 1990s? No. Al-Qaeda. Suicide attackers. Pakistan. Pakistan, the largest Islamic fundamentalist population on the planet, with 149 million people. Two. 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 Well, if Islamic fundamentalism were driving this threat, we should be seeing suicide attackers hopping out of Iran, hopping out of Sudan, and hopping out of Pakistan for al-Qaeda. And that's not the pattern that we see. Now, I'm not saying that al-Qaeda has no transnational support, but it's crucial to see that the presence of foreign And Western, especially American and Western combat troops on the Arabian Peninsula, is Osama's best mobilization appeal. Try again, there we go. Since we have the complete set of Al Qaeda suicide attackers, we can go further to assess the effect of of American military policies. With only one exception, Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists from 1995 to 2004 were all nationals of various Sunni-majority countries. Hence, we can compare the rate at which Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists emerge from Sunni-majority countries with and without American combat presence. And as you can see, Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists are over 10 times more likely to come from a Sunni country with American combat forces than a Sunni country without American combat forces. And this means, ladies and gentlemen, and this may be somewhat hard to hear, and it's even somewhat hard to say, even after I've said it a few times now, (laughs) I supported having those troops there in the 1990s. I trained many of our pilots who did an excellent job there in the 1990s. This means American military policy was likely the pivotal factor leading to 9-11. Although Islamic fundamentalism may matter somewhat, the stationing of tens of thousands of American combat troops on the Arabian Peninsula during the 1990s probably increased the risk of Al-Qaeda suicide attacks against Americans, including 9-11, over 10 times. Now this does not mean that we should blame ourselves for the deaths of our civilians on 9-11. Suicide terrorism is murder and there's nothing that our forces did when they were stationed on the Arabian Peninsula that would justify the murder of our civilians. In fact, I'd be glad in the Q&A to tell you the extent to which they went to reduce their footprint during the 90s. However, that should not cause us to overlook that what recruits suicide terrorists for al-Qaeda better than anything else, Osama's best mobilization appeal is the presence of American ground forces on the Arabian Peninsula. Moreover, I'm not trying to tell you that all al-Qaeda suicide attackers come from Sunni countries where we've stationed combat forces in the 1990s. Two-thirds do, one-third do not. One-third are transnational in nature. However, even if we look at al-Qaeda's transnational suicide attackers, the presence of American and Western combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula is a powerful, mobilizing, motivating factor. Let me talk about the London attacks in this regard, because the London bombers are obviously going to be part of that one-third that's more transnational in nature. And let me make four points about the London attacks. First, The Al-Qaeda group that claimed responsibility for the London attacks just two hours after they occurred and with specific operational details not yet in the press said that the London attacks were to punish Britain for British military operations in Iraq. Second, Hussein Osman. He's the would-be July 21st bomber that we caught in Rome. In Osman's interview, Osman said, and I quote, This was not about religion. This was about Iraq. We watched films of military operations in Iraq. Third, Mohammed Khan. Mohammed Khan is the ringleader of the July 7th attacks, the guy from Leeds. Al-Qaeda released Khan's martyr video in September. And on that video, Khan says, and it's kind of eerie to listen to because he's speaking in it with a British accent, that the London attacks were going to be, he's still alive at this point, were going to be to punish Britain for British military operations on Muslim lands. And finally, the British government itself. In 2004, the British Home Office conducted a four-volume survey of the attitudes of the 1.6 million Muslims in Britain. You can still go and read all four volumes on the London Times website. That survey found that between eight and 13% of British Muslims believed more suicide attacks against the West were called for, and it further found the number one reason for that, Iraq. So the implication. If Al Qaeda's transnational support were to dry up tomorrow, the group would remain a robust threat to the United States. However, if Al-Qaeda no longer drew recruits based on the anger generated by the American military presence in Sunni Muslim countries, the remaining transnational network would pose a far smaller threat and may well simply collapse. Now, with our conquest of Iraq and the increasing force presence on the Arabian Peninsula, Osama's obviously failed to get us out. However, the attack data for Al Qaeda shows more clearly how Al Qaeda's strategy has been evolving. If you look at this table, and if we include London, you'll see that since 9-11, Al Qaeda has carried out over 17 suicide and other terrorist attacks, killing nearly 700 people That's more attacks and more victims than all the years before 9-11 combined. Although many of us would have hoped our counterterrorism efforts would have weakened the group, and we have killed and captured cadre and leaders, by the measure that counts the ability of the group to carry out attacks to kill us, Al-Qaeda is stronger today than before 9-11. A closer look at the attacks since 9-11 helps us to see more precisely Al-Qaeda's evolving logic. Although many of the attacks occur across a broad geographic range and in many Muslim countries, notice the consistency in the victims of those attacks. They are consistently Western civilians and not just any Western civilians, but British, Germans, Italians, French, Australians, That is, the citizens of countries with combat forces deployed side by side with the United States in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if you let your eye go down the list, you'll see that they've been increasingly focused on our allies in Iraq. In other words, since 9-11, Al Qaeda has not been dormant. They've been focusing on stripping the United States of its military allies. And we know this not only because of the pattern of the attacks, but because we have an important al-Qaeda strategy document. In September 2003, al-Qaeda published a 42-page strategy document on radical websites. This document is about how al-Qaeda should deal with the United States after Iraq. It was found in December of 3 by Norwegian Intelligence, and is still sitting on the Norwegian Intelligence Security website. That website is chapter 4, footnote (laughs) 19. So you can find it that way. It's a long list of Norwegian characters. However, as you can see, much of this is in English. They gave it to us. And what happened, and I talked to Rita Howard, who is the person who was managing intelligence for the White House. Norwegian gave us this document, and we put it aside. We put it aside because it was just on radical websites. Well, we're not putting this document aside anymore. And once I tell you more about it, I think you'll see why. This document says (coughs) directly that after Iraq, al-Qaeda should not seek to attack the American homeland in the short term, but instead should focus on stripping the United States of its allies in Iraq. And then it goes on at the length of 42 pages to assess whether they should hit Spain, Britain, or Poland. This is in the fall of 03. The document concludes they should hit Spain in Madrid just before the March 2004 elections, because that would be the attack most likely to knock Spanish forces out of Iraq and put pressure on the British presence in Iraq. And since this document is so important, I'd like to just read a few sentences Therefore, we said that in order to force the Spanish government to withdraw from Iraq, the resistance should be dealt painful blows. It is necessary to make utmost use of the upcoming general election in Spain in March of next year. We think that the Spanish government could not tolerate more than two maximum three blows, after which it will have to withdraw as a result of popular pressure. If its troops still remain in Iraq after these blows, then the victory of the Socialist Party is almost secured, and the withdrawal of the Spanish forces will be on its electoral program. Lastly, we are emphasizing that a withdrawal of Spanish forces from Iraq would put huge pressure (coughs) on the British presence in Iraq. The London attacks were simply the next step in Al Qaeda executing It's strategic logic. Now, the fact that al-Qaeda's been focusing on hitting our allies should not make us as Americans feel good. Some might say, oh, great, they're going after somebody else, not us. (laughs) There's two reasons for that. First, al-Qaeda has now moved fairly far along that particular variant of its strategy. There's probably not much more coercive leverage they believe they have to gain on that just because they've gone so far in that direction. (coughs) <coughs> this helps put in context Osama's statement in January. Remember in January, he issued a statement, hadn't said anything in over a year? You go and read uh, Osama's statement, now that you've heard my talk, and you can find it on the BBC websites, and right, I'd actually encourage you to go read Osama's full statements all the time, and I'm the leader's full statements all the time, which are always on the BBC website because the sound bites from CNN are just to make us mad. We're already mad. (laughs) So um, uh, I think it would be helpful for you to read the statements. And if you do, you'll see that Osama says very clearly in this statement in January that for the last several years, Al Qaeda, and I'm quoting it, has focused on hitting (coughs) the capitals of European countries with combat forces uh, with the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's now going to change. And then he says it's going to change to hitting American-related targets. Now he doesn't tell us when, he doesn't tell us what the targets are. But I could tell you even more if you're interested in Q&A. I will. That there's even closer relationships between his statement, the logic of his statement, and the logic in the document I just read for you, which should mean that we should take this very seriously. Let me say a few words about Iraq. Iraq is a prime example of the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Before America's invasion in March 2003, Iraq never experienced a suicide terrorist attack in its history. Since our invasion, suicide terrorism has obviously been escalating rapidly. It's been doubling every year, that we stationed 140,000 combat forces there. Although many say there's no logic to the Iraqi suicide uh, terrorism, in fact, people are quoted in the Washington Post and New York Times, people I respect and other uh, guises uh, quoted this way, and I think it's probably because they haven't seen the actual data. A closer look at the geography and targets of the Iraqi suicide attacks shows a fairly clear pattern that has remained remarkably consistent over time, even as the attacks have doubled year to year. In fact, the Iraqi insurgents are following a fairly standard model of insurgency. As you can see, 50 to 60% of the attacks are consistently against Baghdad. The rest are more or less evenly distributed around the rest of the country. Well, insurgents are often trying to persuade the population that the government cannot provide security. And so it's common for insurgents to focus on the capital city because if the government can't provide security there, where could it provide security? Further... Over 75% of the attacks are against military and political targets, such as government buildings, police convoys, police stations, recruiting stations, uh, Western troops, and Western agencies. Only 15 to 25% have been against local Iraqi civilians not working for the Iraqi government or civilians not standing in line to work for the Iraqi government. Yes, there have been attacks against mosques and markets on the open street, but you should know that when you read that first story in the newspaper that says another suicide attack in Iraq against civilians, it's often followed later, often just a few days later, by more detailed stories telling you who those civilians are, either people directly standing in line to work for the government or the families of people who work for the government. This pattern of attacks suggests a clear goal, to prevent the establishment of a government under the control of the United States. To do this, the terrorists are attacking targets they hope would undermine the confidence of the Iraqi population in the Iraqi government's ability to maintain order, and to discourage not only the Shia from working with that government, but the Sunnis and Kurds as well. And although there are multiple causes for the Sunni insurgency, what fuels support for suicide terrorism in Iraq more than anything else is the presence of American ground forces. We are widely viewed as the power behind the throne. And Zarqawi, the leader of the Sunni insurgency, almost never misses an opportunity to make this point. And when he does... He merely recounts three things. First, it's the American military that toppled the previous government. Second, it's the American military that's creating the conditions to establish the current government. And third, it's the American military that directs all military force by the Iraqi government. And we do. And in fact, although he exaggerates all three of those points, The basic facts are he hasn't made them up out of whole cloth. All three of those points are essentially true. Moreover, we can see the connection between the American army and Zarqawi's strategy in his famous letter to Osama bin Laden in January 2004, where he actually laid out his strategy. In that letter, Zarqawi said he planned to focus on the Iraqi security forces, and Western agents in Iraq because, and these are his words, they are the eyes, ears, and hands of the American occupier. Now, I'm often asked questions about the identity of the Iraqi suicide attackers. And the answer is, at the moment, their identity is murky, We can only confidently code between 10 and 12% of the identity of the actual suicide attackers in Iraq. And now that I've given so many talks at so many intelligence agencies, I have to tell you, I don't have a clearance now, and I haven't been behind the green door, so there could be things I don't know. Uh, I did have have had clearances before in the 1990s. Uh, But I have to tell you, I'm not persuaded we have any better information than what I'm about to tell you Uh, right now. Uh, And that's just based on six months worth of talking to these people. Um, At the moment our best evidence is that the Iraqi suicide attackers are coming from two main groups, Iraqi Sunnis and Saudis. The next largest group appears to be from Syria and the next largest group appears to be from Kuwait. Notice who I didn't say. Iran. Zero reports of Iraqi suicide attackers. Sudan, none. Pakistan, you might think Pakistan, 149 million people, if we have all these foreign (laughs) Islamic fundamentalists coming in to do attacks, zero. Well, the pattern that I did lay out for you doesn't fit Islamic fundamentalism, but look at what I did say, which is that they're coming either from Iraq itself or from the territories immediately adjacent to Iraq many of which are on our hit list to go after next. That's a picture that's fully consistent with the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Now before I finish, I'd like to take a few minutes and just tell you a little bit about the demographic profile that we found, the demographic data on the suicide attackers. As I told you, overall, we have 462 suicide attackers in the core database. As you can see, we have reasonably good primary demographic data on the group as a whole. We also have reasonably good socioeconomic data on the Arab attackers, which is good because that's the group that you're probably most interested in. This data gives us fresh insight into some past cases. Prior to this effort, our understanding of Hezbollah, that famous suicide terrorist group that did attacks in the 1980s, was quite thin. We knew it was an umbrella organization and that Islamic fundamentalism mattered somewhat. Many speculated that the attackers must be poor, uneducated religious fanatics. Now we know the attackers come from a far broader range of backgrounds. As you can see, there are a total of 41 attackers and 36 attacks. Probably the most important thing we know is the ideology of the attackers. And we can identify that for 38 of the 41 attackers over 90%. Only 21%, 8 of them, are Islamic fundamentalists. 71%, 27, are secular. They're actually communists or socialists opposed to religion. 3, 8%, are Christians. 3 of those are Christians. One is a Christian high school teacher with a BA. Now I told you the survey collected hundreds of pictures of suicide attackers. The native sources are really quite full of them. I thought you might like to see four of the six women suicide attackers from Lebanon. It's striking to see them in Western clothes with Western makeup. Hardly the image of an Islamic fundamentalist. Hardly the image you'd want to project if you're trying to recruit Islamic (laughs) fundamentalists. I'm not taking the naive view that we should just accept the information that's published by the groups. Obviously, they're using it for recruitment, in part. This gives us a better idea of who they're trying to recruit. Norma, the Christian high school teacher with the B.A., is on the lower right in the red beret. We also found interesting characteristics for the attackers overall. Uh, One of them has to do with female suicide attackers, and I'm often asked this question by the news media, what distinguishes a suicide attacker? Well, interestingly enough, one of the main characteristics is simply age. Female suicide attackers tend to be significantly older than male suicide attackers. This slide compares the ages of uh, suicide attackers for groups who have both men and women suicide attackers. And as you can see, they have almost the same small fraction in the 15 to 18 age cohort, and the real difference is over the age of 24, which accounts for about a fifth of male attackers, and nearly half, 46%, of female attackers. Now exactly why this is the case, um, a number of my graduate students are interested in pursuing this, and there's a woman who's actually been working on uh, a really terrific master's thesis on this subject since last summer. Um, And she actually started with an interesting hypothesis, which is that she thought, maybe this reflects declining marriage prospects mature women in traditional societies. Now that she's gotten into the data um, and sees and has discovered who does get married and doesn't get married in these societies, she's not quite so sure her initial hypothesis worked out. But we're not quite, she's not quite done yet. But uh, it's obviously the case that it's an interesting pattern. Why? Because it's clearly not what many people think which is that they're young adolescent girls, maybe teenage girls, who are easily swayed by some older guy you know, uh, in his mid, mid-twenties who's easily talking him into it. The fact that these are women who are immature uh, mature women really does call for uh, an explanation, and I think that um, her thesis is likely to be the first real cut at that, uh, at that argument. We also have found important information on the ideology of the attackers overall. This slide compares the number of suicide attackers who carried out attacks for secular and religious groups. And again, as you can see, the attackers are much more secular than many expect. We can code the the ideology of 384 of the 462 attackers. That's 83%. Of the number we can code, 43%, that's the known total, 43% are religious, and 57% are secular. Even if we take the other 17%, all that missing data, and add it to the religious side, that's the extreme case, we still end up with roughly a 50-50 split. The key point is that suicide terrorism is not an overwhelmingly religious phenomenon. Whoops. Sorry. Now let's turn to the socioeconomic data on the Arab attackers. This slide compares the education level of suicide attackers in Lebanon and Palestine to their peer groups. The attackers are much more educated than many expect. Only 10% have primary education or less compared to nearly half in their surrounding societies. 54% have post-secondary education, at least some years, uh, compared to only a small fraction in their societies as a whole. Income. This slide compares the income level of suicide attackers in Lebanon and Palestine to their peer groups. The attackers are overwhelmingly working or middle class, not poor or unemployed. Only 17% are at the bottom, compared to a third in their surrounding societies, 76% are working or middle class, technicians, mechanics, waiters, policemen, ambulance drivers, teachers. Now it is true that many quit their jobs just a few days or a few weeks to prepare for their attacks, but that doesn't mean they would be unemployed by the usual definition of that term. Finally, this slide compares the income and education levels of secular and religious suicide attackers in Lebanon and Palestine. And there's not much difference, and that's my point. Both secular and religious have the same, virtually identical, income distribution. And on education, if anything, the religious attackers are more educated, but that's the one point in the data where that difference is not statistically significant given the the small n, and it's essentially a wash, statistically. In other words, there's neither difference on income nor on education for the secular religious attackers. So the bottom line is that suicide attackers are not mainly poor, uneducated religious zealots, but reasonably well-educated workers from both religious and secular backgrounds. Many are people who would go on to lead productive lives had they not chosen to do a suicide attack. Well, what have I been telling you today? It's not actually a happy story. I wish I could come with a happier story. But the story is that the threat is growing. The war on terrorism is heading south. A key reason Not the only reason, but a key reason, is that our strategy has been based on a faulty premise. The premise that suicide terrorism is mainly the product of an evil ideology. And although there are multiple causes, the main cause is not an ideology independent of circumstance, but the sustained presence of American and Western combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula. In 2001, we had 12,000 combat troops stationed on the Arabian Peninsula, 5,000 in Saudi Arabia, and 7,000 in other countries on the rim. Today, we have over 140,000 stationed there. And as American combat forces have increased, suicide terrorism both by al-Qaeda and from Iraq has increased side by side. Now, this does not mean that we should simply cut and run. There's a good reason that Iraq is not Vietnam, and that's oil. We have a vital interest in access to oil in the Persian Gulf, and we must act to secure that interest. Instead, I've been offering three points to the Bush administration. First, al-Qaeda must be our top priority. Yes, Iran and North Korea are important, but it's Al-Qaeda that's actively planning to kill us. And I'm afraid we've lost sight of that over the last three years. Second, in Iraq, over the next year, we should begin to draw down, begin to draw down our military forces and transfer responsibility for the security of Iraq to the Iraqi government, including the responsibility for building the Iraqi army. It should be the government of Iraq that builds the Iraqi army, not the American military. Indeed, during our drawdown, the biggest risk is not the Sunni insurgency. The main risk is of a civil war between the three groups. And what we should do is think of Iraq not so much in terms of Vietnam, where the choices against the insurgency were search and destroy versus clear and hold. Instead, the better analogy would be the Balkans, and specifically Bosnia, where you'll remember there was a raging civil war in the mid-1990s among three different groups until we went in and we did one nice thing, (laughs) important thing with our military forces— We didn't do search and destroy versus clear and hold. We served as a buffer among all three groups. And as we draw down, that's, I think, the most important role we should serve in Iraq. And we're not doing that today. The two key areas that we should be uh, essentially serving as a buffer in are in Baghdad and in Kirkuk. And that's not where we've deployed our military forces. So I think that we should draw down, and over the next three years, we should still form some role, but it should be as a buffer among the three groups. Finally, over the next three years, the United States should shift to a new strategy for securing our interests in oil in the Persian Gulf, offshore balancing. In fact, offshore balancing is actually more of a return to our old pre-1990 strategy, In the 1970s and 80s, the United States successfully secured its interest in oil in the Persian Gulf, access to oil, without stationing a single combat soldier there. Instead, we formed an alliance with Iraq and Saudi Arabia, which we can do again. Second, we stationed numerous aircraft carriers off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula, and air power is much more effective today than it was 30 years ago. And finally, we maintained a system of bases, bases without troops, but bases, so that we could rapidly deploy hundreds of thousands of ground troops to the peninsula in a crisis. Well, that strategy of offshore balancing works splendidly to reverse Saddam Hussein's aggression against Kuwait, and offshore balancing is, again, our best military strategy for securing our interests in oil, preventing the rise of a new generation of suicide terrorists coming at us, and it's a strategy that we can maintain not just by our fingernails for a month or two or maybe an extra year, but for several decades, because even under the most optimistic scenarios for energy independence, that's what we're going to need. Thank you, and I'll take your questions.